You probably noticed in the bulletin that we had three people listed. Zia's at college, but Ali's back from college, actually breaking into the world of Hollywood in L.A., so pray for her as she uh, enjoys all of that. She was, of course, the lead in the plays here in Santa Barbara when she was a student. I would ask that you take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 6. We're going to start with the 47th verse. We're moving from the Old Testament and the story of Bathsheba and David. We're moving now to John and the statements of Jesus Christ, to some uh, very difficult statements of Jesus Christ. We're only going to do verse 47 through 69 of the sixth chapter of John. You don't have to be a Christian for very long to realize that Jesus does not make things easy. Sometimes people have this uh, thought that being a Christian is to have some kind of a crutch. If somebody thinks that, they've not even explored Jesus Christ, let alone understand what it means to be a Christian. In almost every way, uh, Jesus Christ does not make it easy. He does, of course, make life worth living. He does give fulfillment to everything that we do. Beyond description, he births us into an eternal community of God in which we fear not this world or even its ultimate nemesis of death. For we live in a place of his ultimate care. And we live in a community of justice and of love and of caring and of walked and shared life. And it's just an amazing thing uh, to walk with God. But none of that came easy. It didn't come easy to Jesus himself. He had to pay the ultimate price to go through what was required for the moral universe for it to be possible for us to be forgiven and to be cleansed. But it's not easy for us. If you are thoroughly going to give your life over to Jesus Christ, you are going to experience something that is profoundly transformative, but not easy. He also does not make it easy in, in some other ways. I could go into it in a lot of ways, but let me just list one more. If he had accepted the temptations of Jesus, remember when he was baptized and he began his public ministry and the Holy Spirit took him into the wilderness and there Satan was and tempted him to do ministry in a different way than he did. If he had turned stones into bread, he would have ended world hunger. If he had, in fact, become king of the kingdoms that Satan offered him, he could have used power then to force peace upon the world. And he could have, if he had floated down from the Temple Mount, used his supernatural power to produce a sense of awe and wonder and to cause people to have great thought in his magical control over the elements of the world. But of course, Jesus didn't do that. He asks us to feed the hungry and to care for one another. He asks us to stand up to the kingdoms of the world and require justice and rightness in the way they govern. He asks us to have faith and not magical, wishful thinking as though that is something of value. He respects and he loves us and he's one with us in such a way that his ministry is true and it's transformative and it is eternal and it will be the same in the realm to come. But the text today and why I, I bring all of that up, it, it shows another way in which Jesus does not make it easy. This is one of the most interesting uh, texts in scripture and I would suggest to you that it's one of the most important texts in scripture. 
To understand that fully, we need to step out of 2,000 years of Christian tradition and our experience of the sacrament of Holy Communion. I want you to put yourself back in Judah. You've heard about this Rabbi Yeshua, and you want to go check him out. And you go and you hear some amazing things. And he seems to be turning the world right side up. And he seems to be identifying everything that, that you recognize is true and, and that is lasting. And, and then he says something that even his closest disciples struggle with. Yeshua says, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up in the last day. For my flesh is real food. And my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. And I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, I'm, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, how would you hear that if you're standing there in that dusty field long ago and this rabbi standing in a white robe with sandals on says you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Does he mean it literally? Is he saying we literally have to eat his body, drink his blood with these actual teeth, these actual tongues? Or is literal too shallow to understand what he's saying? Is he saying so, something so much deeper that the literal meaning is not the way the frequency of the ear and heart and mind is supposed to hear what the Yeshua rabbi is saying. You see, we have a very real human problem when it comes to this larger reality that all scripture reveals, but Jesus himself reveals it very directly. Human language, a human experience, even our human mental concepts, our human categories, are all very helpful when we use them literally in this physical world to understand what is happening around us. But they are, in fact, inadequate to even begin to describe what it means to be alive beyond the physical world, to be alive beyond the biological life, to be alive in the same way that God has life, what the scriptures call Ionian life, a life so much greater than just the literal physical breath. But the problem that you and I have, and, and it's a problem, in fact, of, of all uh, philosophical thought and all religious thought, is that this world and its concepts and the language and our experiences is all we have. We, we don't have more. And our aliveness that comes directly from Jesus is something that we need to use the language that we have in order to even begin to understand what he is saying. When we say that 
all life comes directly from Jesus and that he's the source of present spiritual rebirth and future eternal life, that he's the source of our very being, then how else can we uh, say it except to say that he's our, he's our blood, he's our bread, he's our breath, he's the basis of, of being, the source of our very being. How else can we describe it but to use that kind of literal language? What other language do we have? If, if we detach ourselves from that kind of language and from God himself, then where are we going to go to find life and how are we going to describe it if this is the best that we can use to describe as Jesus describes it? It's not easy being Christian. But as Peter explains, where else can we go? Well, where else is there life? Uh, have you explored the other religions? One of the great things I love about Christian faith is that we believe all truth belongs to God and we say to our people, study everything, understand everything, look at everything, see what is true. Don't be afraid of, of exploring the world and, and how people have thought. And let God speak through that truth. So this morning we're going to go to this amazing moment where Jesus said these words in the flesh and he's looking to people in the flesh and he's telling them things that are so profound that even today we still struggle to understand all that he means. Jesus, of course, here is giving us the secret of life. What is the secret of life? This is it. So chapter 6 of John, starting with verse 47, and we'll go through verse 69. Oh, interestingly, I wanted to put this in there. When, when our NIV version says, very truly, or the King James version says, truly, truly, uh, the words there are, are the literal words, amen, amen. When you say amen at the end of a prayer, you're saying truth. This is truth. May it be the truth in my life. May truth be true. And so, amen, amen, is saying, the truth of truths is what I'm about to tell you. There is truth, and this is it. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat, and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, 
So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now he said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And then the NIV translators go on to describe this next section as many disciples desert Jesus. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, Many of his disciples turned back, John says, and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of Ionian life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now keep that open. Let's pray. Father, as we come and as we experience the fullness of the triune God, the wonderful blessings of the Trinity, as we come to understand Jesus and the unique and, and necessary uh, ministry that he came, that it's not just his words, he said, but it's his life, it's his death, it's his resurrection, that you give us life. Uh, speak to each of us in our mental struggles and our philosophical speculation and our own personal walk with you, our prayer times, our worship times, our study of your word. Uh, speak to each of us. Uh, we're listening. Uh, speak uniquely. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Last week we talked about our pop culture and how even our professional mental health DSM-4 diagnostic manuals no longer believe there's any truth or there's any reality beyond each individual's perception of truth. Some even go so far as to say that there is no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as right or wrong no such thing as truth or lies or true or false. One of the interesting consequences of this was discovered by a study that was done recently by the Pew Research Center. As you can see by this chart, in the last 20 years, the same amount of time as I compared the DSM-4 to the DSM-5 last week, in these last 20 years, we have all lost, all generations have lost some of our trust in others. The question that was asked that only 40% of boomers and 19% of millennials said is true. 
Generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or that you can't be too careful in dealing with people? 40% of boomers say, yes, most people are trustworthy people. You can have relationships with them. But the millennials who have never known a culture that actually believes there is true and there is false, there is truth and there are lies, the millennials say only 19% say yes. Now think about that. Interestingly, I looked it up, and only 19% of millennials are evangelical Christians in the United States. I don't know if that's a, a direct correlation, but I suspect that it is. But think about it. If all your friends are saying there is no such thing as a lie, no such thing as true, wouldn't there be cheating on the university campuses, epidemic, as we're having today? Wouldn't there be difficulty in relationship? Because how can you know that what your friend is saying to you is true if they don't believe in truth and they don't believe in lies? They don't believe in reality, in what is real. This generation wants, the millennial generation wants authenticity more than anything else. They want something to be real because they're longing for something that our philosophical culture has taken from them. It's interesting that a generation that wants authenticity trusts very few people. It's also interesting that not only do millennials not trust each other and find it difficult then to have lasting relationships in that, but the research also shows that they don't trust adults, they don't trust institutions, they don't trust churches, they don't trust pastors. They don't trust religions. 81% have lost basic trust. Now, basic trust is a basic element to the human being that psychologists have identified as necessary for relationship. If you're going to have good relationships, you have to have basic trust that others can, in fact, be trustworthy in a relationship such that you will give them your heart. You will give them your commitment. You'll give them your life. But as you can see from the chart, every generation is in decline. All generations are in decline. The majority of Americans no longer trust others. Think about that. Perhaps it is because if there's no such thing as truth, then how can you trust someone to tell you the truth? But from a Christian perspective, we step over into something even more consequential than this relational distrust that has permeated the modern American life. Even more de devastating result is that the majority of Americans have decided that you cannot say then, since there is no ultimate truth, that there is only one way to find life that there's only one source of life, that there's only one savior of humanity as a whole. We can say to this culture in which we live, my truth that I have discovered is that Jesus is my savior. That is acceptable. But as soon as we say, 
He is the only Savior, the only source of life, and He wants to give you this life that is possible. We stepped over that proverbial line. We're no longer abiding by the acceptable norm that our culture has decided that all roads lead to God and that all gods are the same and that there is no God above all gods for they're all equally individual. But that's what makes Jesus hard. We actually read what he says when we accept his truth and we live by his ways. And that means to receive his life and to have that life within us, the life that was in the Father and is in him, is now within us. And he says that life only comes through him, through his own body and his own blood. And no one, he says, even has life without him. We're already dead, he says. We don't know it yet, but unless we receive his life and remain in him and we receive this source of bread and breath and being from him, then we are tied to this literal, relentless mortality. And we are, as popular culture actually is saying to us, we're already dead, it just hasn't happened yet. For you're just a physical being and there's nothing else to you. So you're already dead. You just haven't accepted it. But now the second thing that has happened to us as Christians in this is that if we say, yes, there is life and there is life that comes through Jesus Christ and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, then how do we receive that life? What does it mean to, to receive Jesus as our life-giving Savior, the source of our very being? Suppose you step out of that philosophical prison that our uh, culture has placed us in and you decide, okay, I'm going to allow Jesus to give me life. Well, how do you do that? How does he give you life? How does he make that happen? Now, we ask the question, how do we receive this life? In part because that literal, physical, emotional, spiritual, holistic, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind is a life-giving experience. And we want to unpack it because the, the difference that people say today is not this materialistic spiritual uh, dichotomy that so many people uh, think to be true. Uh, it's different from materialism, which says that we're simply physical. This is all, all there is is material. And it's very different from spiritual, which is a lot of the Eastern religions say, no, there is no material, it's all spiritual. Now, Christianity blends the two in this integrated whole. Um, spirituality is true, and physicality is true. They're not symbols. More than half of Christians today are Roman Catholic. And they accept the understanding that we become a Christian when we receive this life just exactly, literally, as Jesus describes it. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that when we physically partake of the elements of the sacrament of Holy Communion, we have, and these elements have been literally transubstantiated, they've changed actual substance into a physical, actual body and blood of Jesus Christ because a priest has uh, performed that 
a sacramental moment, then when we partake of the bread and we partake of the wine, we literally chew on his body and drink his blood. We have received the actual substance that Jesus Christ offers to us. And that life was in Jesus, and so life that came from the Father to Jesus now comes to us through the sacrament, through the Eucharist, through the Holy Communion. It's interesting that the word Jesus uses in verse 54, when he says, whoever eats my flesh, is not the more general concept of to eat, which you could more philosophically uh, understand, but rather it is an actual literal word meaning to chew or to gnaw or to crunch food with teeth. So Jesus goes out of his way to use a literal word when he could have used a different word to describe how we receive this eternal Ionian life. And so you can understand how Roman Catholic theologians would say this is a transubstantiated experience. Now, in the Protestant world, which includes us, there are several other less common uh, viewpoints, and I'm not going to go into those days. You can, you can study them or you can ask me. But as Wesleyans who come from the Anglican tradition in the Protestant world, we are in agreement with the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church makes up uh, with the Protestant and Orthodox, as you can see from the chart, we make up basically the other half of Christianity. And we explain that the life Jesus gives us is in reality so far beyond language and so far beyond literal understandings. Literal is too shallow to understand what is being described here. That we can only use the word mystery. It is within scripture, it's within the in the Latin, it's within our own language, the mysterium. We believe, as Wesleyans, that the elements are the real presence of Christ, not requiring a substance change, uh, an actual chemical, uh, physical, literal change in it, a trans-substance, transubstantiation, but rather the communion with Jesus Christ is really, mysteriously, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually real. We commune with God, and the real life that comes from Jesus Christ comes to us through that communion. The life that lifts us from being spiritually dead now is the same life that will resurrect us from the literal biological death that each of us will experience. And although we believe the sacrament of this sacred moment in which Jesus Christ offers us the elements in this mysterious real presence of God, the greatest moment for any Christian is to participate in the sacrament of Holy Communion. We also believe, though, that this whole life is sacramental. For us as uh, Protestant Christians and as Anglican uh, Free Methodist Christians, we believe that the sacramental experience is that Christ is present in all things and that life and death and life eternal, life as it is to be lived now and in all realms to come, 
is something that we experience from all of creation and from all of community and from all of the experiences of our reason and our, our uh, tradition and, of course, our study of the Word of God. We believe that not only is life real and that Jesus is the source of life, but life comes through all things that the Creator and the Savior and the Sustainer uh, provides for us. We believe, then, that Jesus is the bread, the breath, the blood, the source of being, that He is the only way to the Father, and that He is, as He Himself explained to us, the way that we get this life, the truth that transcends all human opinions and individual perspectives. And He is the life that comes from God and is ours, and we live for and with Him. So this morning, I don't know if you've received this life that comes through Jesus Christ, but I want you to know that He came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. And the way you receive that is to open yourself to Jesus Christ and let Him come and re new, restore, revamp, reinvigor your very being. And so this morning in this quiet moment, I encourage you to spend time with God and all that He is and allow life to be yours. Let's spend time with Jesus.